Donald Jeffries Show. And welcome to the Donald Jeffries Show. This is Donald Jeffries. My guest today is Marshall Terrell. Marshall is, uh, has had an extensive career writing about showbiz and entertainment. His latest book is entitled Lennon, Dylan, Alice, and Jesus. That's a, quite a title. Uh, I just got done reading it. Very interesting book it is. He's an expert on Steve McQueen. He's, he's published seven books about McQueen's life. Wow. He sounds like the uh, uh, we have Jude Kessler out there that's uh, writing so many books about John Lennon's life. Amazing. Really, obviously, must be going in depth there. And they made a documentary out of it that uh, aired in theaters all across the nation. It's now available on DVD. Uh, he's, he's written books on other things like Johnny Cash, Pete Maravich, former NBA and NCAA star, Ruth Pointer, the Pointer Sisters, heavyweight champion Ken Norton. And three books on Elvis Presley. He's written a total of 30 books in all. So we're happy to have him on the show. We'll be talking about a variety of topics. Uh, Marshall, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Well, you know, there was a lot there, and I, I, I had to pare it down a little bit. Sometimes uh, these introductions, are you're, you're very accomplished. So uh, to make sure that we uh, can fit it all in there. So uh, how did you – you've written 30 books. About, I assume it's, it looks like they're all on – some type of uh, cultural thing. I mean, you had a couple in sports, but uh, it seems like you're in that, that wheelhouse. Uh, how did you get started? So you, have you been a full-time writer for uh, your life, or how did you get started down this path? Well, I uh, once worked for a, a, a gentleman by the name of Charles Keating, and uh, so I was working with for him while I was going to college. I really thought my career was going to be in business, and uh, he was at the, the head of the savings and loan scandal back in the late 80s. Yes, so, yes. Um, again, I, I was going to school, studying business, and then that all happened. And then um, it just, it all kind of came crashing down at the same time. So I had to decide what I wanted to do for a living. And so um, my dad called me and said, what are you going to do? I said, you know what, I, I'd, I'd love to write a book on Steve McQueen. And he said, well, how are you going to support yourself? I said, well, I was thinking of coming back and living living at home with you. <laughs> I lived in Washington, D.C., or I grew up there in, in the D.C. area in Alexandria and Fairfax, and he was still living there. And I knew that the Library of Congress was there. And that's, that's as you know, when, when the uh, before the ad- advent of the Internet. Uh, otherwise, I would have had to, to move there to do all my research. But that's what I did. I, I ended up going back, uh, living with them. And uh, I spent three and a half years of my life researching the life of Steve McQueen. And then uh, that was my first book. And then that was kind of the start of the whole journey. What, what attracted you? Was he just your favorite actor? Or what, what made you uh, so interested in Steve McQueen? Well, he was definitely my favorite actor growing up. Um, but I always felt like there was a part of the story that had never been told before. And that was, was that he was a very, very insecure guy and I, I know that shocks a lot of people that an actor is insecure but Steve McQueen uh, as you know was like the all-american hero and he was cool and he was the defiant rebel and uh, you know come to find out he was he was those things but he was also the opposite and so that's what fascinated me the other thing that fascinated me was that um, there were a couple of other books that had come out at the time but they really kind of focused on the bad boy behavior and the motorcycles they didn't focus on the fact that this was an exceptional film actor. And so I focused on that. I also focused on the behind the scenes of his behavior, um, his insecurities and his, his personal life, which was, you know, uh, kind of a wreck. 
And um, so that that's what really fascinated me about his life. Yeah, well, and again, you know, as you know, you, you've been reading my book uh, <clears throat> on borrowed fame. I I went into this, you know, how fleeting fame is. And if you look back at uh, one of his, I, I don't know if he was romantically involved with her or not, but Allie McGraw was, when I was a teenager, she was the biggest female star, I think, in the business. And she's alive but uh, today, but I mean... How many people do you think even would would even recognize her name? I mean, she has vanished from the radar, and she was the absolute. I don't know if that would have happened to Steve McQueen. It might have, though. It happens to a lot of people, but uh, they were. Uh, I remember them in the Getaway. I can't remember what other movies they were, but I think they were more than that. But uh, just you know, do you, how do you think if, if Steve McQueen was because he old would he be? Would I think he conceivably still be alive? He wasn't that old when he died, right? And so, well, it depends. I mean, what you think conceivably means? I mean, he'd be ninety three years old by now. Okay, okay, well, okay. So, you said, so, you know, anytime you hit over the age of eighty, you know, every day is a good day above ground. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, boy, that shows how time is. Like, you don't think of it as being. Uh, that because uh, I, I remember, I think the first thing I remember Steve McQueen in was a very memorable Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode with a, a bet in the room about cutting off a finger or something. Wasn't he the star of that? That's right. That's right. But but to your point, you know, when you start hitting the age of 50, you know, your 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 stars that you thought are icons, then you start asking the younger generation and they go, who? Um, yeah, you know, they today, really Steve McQueen is a, is a black film director. Um, yeah. So you know you you really have the two worlds of Steve McQueen now. Um, so that just kind of it does show you how. Well, I've never know. heard of that. I've never heard of that Steve McQueen. I did not know that. <laughs> so. Oh yeah, yeah. He, he's he's a very accomplished and uh, uh, heavily awarded uh, uh, film director. He did directed the movie Shame. Um, he he's really kind of a critic's darling, and he does he does really great stylistic movies. Wow. Well, so the, the book in question that I've read which is, is very interesting because you basically talk about the, um, I guess, the Christian beliefs of, of some of these, uh, if, for instance, like Alice Cooper. And I, Alice Cooper was, I went through a phase when I was 14 or 15 and his music was just coming in. And boy, I, I thought they were the they were the best thing in the world. I got the, the School's Out album that had a, a women's panties as the record liner. Oh, man, that was the coolest thing in the world. Great marketing. But a uh, really underrated band, great. But but to know what he's like and the guy that's singing Dead Babies and Halo of Flies and stuff, this is a conservative guy who golfs all the time, and apparently he's a devout Christian. So t- talk about how that book came. Was that you know I know you, and you wrote it with uh, was it Greg Laurie? I want to make sure I get his name right. Um, how did how did that project get started? Well, it all starts with a book that he wanted to do, a book and a documentary he wanted to do called Steve McQueen. Uh, the salvation of an American icon. And um, so what happened was, is that, you know, he, he knew that I was a Steve McQueen expert. He approached me. Greg is a, uh, uh, an evangelist and, and pastor of a very, very large church called Harvest in, in Orange County, but he has three campuses um, and he has a very, very big following. And, and um, a, a lot of people have pegged him as the next Billy Graham. And so, um, Greg had approached me to do the book, and then we turned that into a documentary. And because we had such a really fun time collaborating and writing together, he said, you know, I had this idea for a series of books. Um, he wanted to do a, a series on famous icons who became born again Christians. So the second one 
was on Johnny Cash. Third one was on Billy Graham, um, who was uh, you know already an icon, but we we had kind of a different take on it. And then he came up with this idea of you know I want to do something on all the rock icons that were my heroes growing up, and whatever happened to them spiritually. So this is this isn't just a book about the ones that became Christians. It's also some of the ones that you know kind of uh, vanished and died at a very early age. There's a chapter called the 27 Club, which uh, talks about Hendrix, yes, Morris, yes. Joplin, their beliefs, uh, how they got lost along the way, or what were some of the things in their childhood that uh, prevented them from moving forward as an adult. Um, so we, we know it's not just about those, uh, you know, about these guys becoming Christians. Now, majority of that is, but it's also about, it's about the sex, drugs, and mm-hmm. their beliefs. And so we don't shy away from those two other things because um, those two other things oftentimes prevent someone from moving forward in their life with their spirituality. So we wanted a a fresh take on that. And you read it and, you know, we didn't pull any punches. That's for sure. So we wanted to make this a read for someone who's a Christian who might say who would want to uh, read a fun Christian book, but also for uh, a non-believer who might read and go, oh, well, that's interesting. Well, it, it shows how, how imperfect these things can be, too. So you take somebody like Elvis Presley, who had a history. His family is a typical, you know, traditional, I guess, Baptist uh, Southern family. And they, they're they going to church. They love gospel music. He always loved gospel music. So he always had those roots there. But how, how did he reconcile his obvious beliefs? I think he certainly seemed to be a, a strong believer with the lifestyle that, you know, you hear all these stories of uh, naked, uh, I mean, or t- teenager girls mud wrestling and, and, you know, naked or half naked. And the, uh, the, obviously the many affairs that he had. And, of course, the, the pretty much incredible amount of drugs he did. Was was he able to reconcile that in his mind? I mean, obviously he's a human, but uh, did, did his faith ever waver? He just kind of, like most of us, just realized, well, this is my weakness, but I still believe. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, when you're an icon um, like he is, and you have a certain amount of fame, I, I've got to believe that you think a little bit differently, or you you start to think differently, or your mind adjusts to certain things. Um, you know, in this book, we talk about Bob Dylan, and you know, he, he made a remark to somebody to the effect of, "Well, certainly you don't expect me to do that, um, or you don't expect me to, mm-hmm. you know, follow in those same footsteps." Um, so I think that that's perhaps where that that sort of thing yeah. comes in. Of course, uh, and then, then there are instances where, where a fan came up to him in the 1970s when he was in Vegas and put a crown on a pillow and said, here, this is for you. Yeah, yeah. And he says, no, honey, I, I'm not the king. There's only one man that's the king, and that's Jesus Christ. I'm just a singer, and you should never worship anybody but him. So, you know, you had these moments of humility. Um, where he did recognize, you know, who his maker was. So I, I think that th- that those sorts of things, and it certainly was in the life of Johnny Cash, a constant battle, be- because mm-hmm. when you're raised that way, you you, you know you, you you know who your maker is, and yet you're you're then when when fame hits you, then you've got to fight off all these incredible temptations, mm-hmm. and it, it's just you if you're just a common man. You might judge it, but but you you really have to understand that you know you're getting constant temptation thrown at you every day, every minute of the day, and how do you fight that off? 
Oh, I mean, I, exactly. I mean, I, and I, these are, you know, you're only human. I, I, all of us can only, you know, when I was young, like, like Chuck and everybody else, you know, I fantasized about being on stage and playing my songs for people. And, and, and just, and I knew groupies went along with that. And I thought, wow, yeah, this is, this would really be cool. So of course, I don't know how anybody could read something like Alice Cooper, who was, and I, as you know, if you've gotten that far in unbarred fame, I have a section in there of a really amazing number of uh, rock stars who have remained married to one woman for a very long period of time. Frank Zappa, for instance, and he, he claimed yeah. he never cheated. Uh, uh, Alice Cooper appears to be faithful. You have uh, somebody like Alan Clark, who is the lead singer of the Hollies, the group that Graham Nash is in, uh, had been married a long time. Uh, Levi Stubbs of the Four Tops was uh, so Rudy, lots of these. Oh, Rudy Sarzo of Quiet Riot has been married to his uh, yeah. wife and still deeply in love with her. You know, so um, yeah. I, it, I, I, it, what's what's the guy's? Um, guys built differently. Yeah. Uh, what's the, oh god the guy's name? I can't believe I can't think of it. Oh, what do I think? He used to be such a good-looking guy, and his band was named after Mike. Look at I'm I'm zoning out here, but he was a big oh. star. In, John Bon Jovi? Bon Jovi. Yeah, Bon Jovi. Was, isn't he still married to the same woman, his high school sweetheart or something? Yeah, right, he is. And you know how many, imagine how much temptation that guy had. So, Oh, uh, my, I, I, had, I had an ex-wife who was just totally in lust with that guy, and I couldn't uh, I couldn't stop hearing, hearing about him. Yeah, so, I mean, he probably had millions of, <laughs> and so uh, that's, uh, that's willpower, baby, right there. So my hat's off. Any, any guy that can do that, man, that's like a, a cloistered, uh, uh, you know, monk or something like that. It's amazing to be able to, because, you know, all of us out here, married guys like me, I've been married for uh, 35 years, 36 years. And, uh, you know, I, I don't, I'm not subject to those temptations, but if I was subject to those kind of temptations, I, you know, I, I'm only human. So that that's, that's actually pretty amazing. Uh, Roger McGuinn has always interested me because uh, I, I was one of my, I loved Roger McGuinn's sound and I, I try to pattern my singing voice after his, and you know, he's well, kind of the leader of the birds after Gene Clark uh, kind of faded away and had, had his issues. But, but Roger, how long, Roger McGuinn has been uh, really a, a, a faithful Christian for a while, hasn't he? Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, he said that he used Elvis's death uh, as, as sort of an inspiration uh, or a point where he kind of needed to get his act together because – Elvis died when he was age 42, and McGuinn said, I was only seven years younger at 35. He goes, I was taking the same drugs. I was doing the same things. And uh, it's it kind of, it was as if Elvis's death jarred him back into his spiritual life. And um, uh, not only is he spiritual, but I believe he teaches, and he, he, he teaches lessons, and he holds uh, study groups, uh, he and his wife do. So um, very, very interesting person. Well, that would be a that would be a very cool Bible study group to go to, <laughs> Roger, Roger McGuinn Lady. Well, our, our our friend Bob Wilson, I want to shout out to him because he's the one that brought us together. I suggested uh, you to me, and I'm glad he did. He always has great recommendations. But he has told me about a couple of these guys. Uh, first of all, Dylan. Well, and you know, both Bob and I love Dylan. I've you know been a huge fan of Dylan for so long, analyzing his lyrics uh, probably way too closely. But uh, what I was under the impression until I talked to Bob a lot that that was kind of a phase, the slow train coming, you know, phase of Dylan where he uh, and people just said, well, he's doing this for commercial reasons because it was kind of becoming popular at that time to become a born again Christian. Um, 
but he see, it appears to that this has become his faith now. What what do we know about Dylan? Who, of course, was a was a, a Jew who's you know most Jews are not religious, like a lot of Catholics. I was raised Catholics, so but his family apparently was, and so he was a real Jew, if you want to call it that. And he suddenly became uh, he turned to Christ at some point. Is is he still faithful? Because Bob says he is. I, I don't know much about it. I haven't, I haven't really followed his music uh, in, in quite a while. Well, we, we conclude in the book that, you know, he's, he, he, we're only going by what his words are. And, and, and uh, in 2009, I think he, he came out with a Christmas, Christmas album, and he, was, and he sang a Christmas song. And an interviewer, I think from NPR, said, you know, you sing that song with such conviction like you're a believer. And he says, well, I am a believer. And um, then he, then they got into this conversation about reading the Bible. And he said, oh, I, I not only read the Bible, I believe every word of it. So um, I think that the problem with people is that they, they glom on to every word he says, and then they attribute something to him. And um, I, I think what Greg Laurie wants to do is, is tell people that, you know, everybody's a work in progress and that, uh, you know, their, their Christian life isn't over until it's over. You know, um, they can still be seeking. They can still be searching. Um, uh, you know, John Lennon is the perfect example. Yes. We were, where, where Lennon had uh, professed his faith in Jesus Christ in uh, spring of 77. Now, uh, it didn't stay long. It didn't take for very long. But then we found out another episode where he was in Japan and, um, you know, he attended a church service there. And uh, one of the missionaries had... Uh, talked extensively about uh, her conversation with him and how he said that he was looking for something spiritual to do um, with his life and, and talking to, to missionaries about the meaning of life. Um, now, of course, later on, we know that he got into the occult, um, or should I say he, he wasn't worshiping the occult, but he was, he was reliant upon tarot card readers and astrologists and numerology to make all these decisions for him. Um, so, you know, so it, it just kind of it brings back that point. Okay, well, he was a Christian. Um, he he fell back from it. Um, you know, so it's really tough to to it's tough for any of us to judge anybody where they are in their life. That's that's only for right. that's only for judgment. And so I think that's where we are with the book, and that's kind of the same with Dylan. I mean, only Dylan really knows. Um, but um, you know. Based on what he said in that interview in 2010, you know, it, 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 he seems to, to be, believe the Bible. So, um, again, it's, it's really tough for us to judge him, and I, I wouldn't want to judge anybody where they are. But that's kind of, those are the kinds of things that the book looks at. Well, Bob has, Bob has told me that, uh, that um, John Lennon recorded uh, several songs when he was in his Christian state or whatever, very religious songs about Jesus. And that, uh, but they seem to have been scrubbed. I think he said Jude Kessler may have some or something, but they seem to have been scrubbed from the internet. And he, and he seemed to think that, that Yoko especially was very upset when he became uh, this you know kind of religious Christian for a while. But uh, do you know anything about that? You know, he had told me the same thing. I knew, I do know uh, for a fact that there is a song on the internet called Amen, which is Lennon's version of the Lord's Prayer. And then um, he also, there's an outtake on Double Fantasy uh, called Help Me to Help Myself, which he talks about um, 
um, how he needs a little help from God. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you know, one of the songs that did make Double Fantasy, uh, Beautiful Boy, uh, he, he tells Sean to say a little prayer before he goes to bed. So there was, you know, the, the, the thing with Lennon was he would bounce back and forth. Yes. In the, in the book we call him a spiritual tourist. And, yeah, that, that's a great. I like that line. Well, you know, he had he had this uh, song, a uh, beautiful song that he wrote. I don't know if it made Devil Fantasy. Uh, Grow old with me, which right. is uh, a beautiful. And he's you know God, you know God. He refers to God throughout it. And yeah, so, yeah. and it, this is the guy who wrote the song. <clears throat> Anybody who's <clears throat> excuse me heard his song God is a solo artist that he just you know he sounds and imagine even. So to me, that was a remarkable transformation there. Well, the the thing with Lennon, and I've got a good friend named Ken Mansfield who uh, worked for the Beatles under Apple, and well, he basically called John Lennon rock and roll's grease pig. You you couldn't you couldn't catch him really at anything. You know, he was here, he was there, uh, he was there, he was everywhere. Um, uh, but in, in terms of you know his spirituality, you you couldn't really nail him down. But, but um, I, well, I was surprised. Like, okay, yeah. I was going, okay. yeah. You know, I, was, I, was, I, was, I was surprised, though, just reading your book, that from what I got, it looked that Lennon was the far more spiritual person than, say, McCartney. McCartney doesn't seem to have, he just kind of says, yeah, I believe in something, but he's not very, he's kind of vague about it. I agree. I, I totally agree with you on that. And, and, and Starr uh, talks about um, uh, getting, uh, uh, acknowledging God's existence through AA. So um, I, agree, I totally agree with you there. But, the, but again, that that all falls back on, you know, with icons, um, they're really harder to reach. They're harder to get to. They're the ones who really don't have any friends. Um, and, you know, they they have associates, but do they have any really really good friends that when the, when it comes to, to telling them what the truth is, do they have any of those people around them? You, you just don't know. No, absolutely. So, what what do you I, you didn't talk about them in the book? What, what do we know about the Rolling Stones or or any or, or any of them actual Satanists? I, I can't imagine there's a Christian in the Rolling Stones. I don't know, but but uh, what do you know about? Do you know anything about them? I, I really don't. I uh, I, uh, I I you know it would really be tough to to put any um, anything on them uh, other than yeah. You know, and I wouldn't even want to say that they're atheists or agnostic because I just don't know. Okay, I, I figure I know they weren't in the book, but I just for some reason that you know you talk about the Beatles and you talk uh, you know, about them. So this so this this idea basically was to show. Uh, so talk talk about some something else. I mean, I, I I've hit a lot of the points that I got out of the book, but what do you, what do you think is most important about the book that you think readers would find most interesting or that they should take away? Well, um, somebody said something. An interviewer said something that really struck me. Believe it or not, because when you write a book. You know, and you push it away. Um, you, uh, <laughs> you, sh- you're like the worst person to ask. But when Greg Laurie was interviewed not too long ago, he was interviewed by a fellow pastor, and and, and the pastor came away with an observation, and I totally agree with, and that was people aren't built for fame. Uh, they're just, you know, they, they, we are such delicate human beings. We, our egos can swell too easily. Um, we're just, the fame is unnatural and we're not built for it and we don't handle it well. And I think everybody that you read in the book didn't handle it very well. So, um, you know, and you take that combined with the fact that, um, singers, artists, 
are very, very sensitive human beings. They seem to uh, have an antenna, I've always felt, that, that's a little bit more sensitive than others. And so um, they're in tune with a lot more things that are just kind of uh, uh, beneath the surface than, than, than most. So um, then when you put those guys in a situation where it's unnatural, it's, it's interesting to see how they react. Some, some, like Graham Parsons, don't react well at all. Um, Paul McCartney has seemed to have handled it okay over the years, but he was built for that. A lot of people aren't. A lot of, um, a lot of artists come from broken homes, and they're looking. Uh, it's just like the people in Hollywood. I, I, I've always had this theory about people in Hollywood that they're, they're not looking for a profession. They're looking to run away from something, and that was definitely the case with Steve McQueen. When you get yeah. to Hollywood, you can reinvent yourself. You can be whoever you want to be. And um, and um, so, you know, with, with artists, uh, you know, they're, they're just very, very sensitive people. Well, in both cases, especially for the, the average guy, and of course this is going to sound uh, sexist, but I, I'm sorry. I think men and women are built differently, and, and guys just have a uh, – when you're – most rock groups start out uh, – you're either in your maybe early twenties, typically. You know, when you're when you're really, if you make it, a lot of times you make it then, or in your twenties. So, what are you thinking about more than anything at that time? I mean, sex is on yeah. your mind constantly, and suddenly you're in the midst of having all the more sex than anybody could ever dream of with uh, strange women who are you can have your pick, and no questions asked. You can just kind of have a release and go. I mean. That's got to be an ultimate dream, but of course it's empty too. Because then, how do you? That's why I'm amazed at these these uh, rock stars, especially that have. I mean, even more so than actors, because there's not a whole lot. There are some actors, but uh, I think it's a little easier in Hollywood maybe to have a long marriage because the actors aren't really subject quite as much. I don't think to groupies. I guess they are, but uh, rock stars is just amazing, you know. But so to be able to have a long lasting marriage under those circumstances is incredible. So I, I don't think they're leading, whether you're a rock star or an actor, it's not any kind of a normal life. So I, I don't know how you could expect anybody living that life to be normal because it's, it's just, it's not what like any of us do any other kind of job. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's a, it's kind of like a, a ticket to Candyland um, for a couple of years. And the, but the, but the other interesting part is when it's over, it's really over. And then you, a lot of these guys become a joke. So like, how do you deal with that? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, like the, a lot of the metal bands, you know, everybody likes to make fun of them um, because they're an easy target. But uh, you know, you, you, they had a, they had a good little ride for three or four or five years at the most. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you know, they get replaced by grunge and then, yeah. you know, and, and we're talking 30 years ago now. So yeah. you know, what do you do meantime to, to support yourself? You know, yeah. um, it's really, really tough. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you've, we'll talk a little bit about because you've written a couple of sports books, too. And I would say that uh, athletes are the only other group that could approximate rock stars in terms of uh, having. I, I, I tell this story. I've told this story before. But uh, when my son was, I, I think it was his 11th birthday, something like that, 10th, 11th birthday, uh, we, we, the Nationals hadn't come back to D.C. yet, so we didn't have a Major League Baseball team here. So for his birthday in August, we went out to uh, the, uh, the Prince William Cannons, where like a, I think a, I think they were a Double A team 
maybe a single A team. So they were a, not even a top level Triple A minor league team. And uh, we watched watched the game, and at the end of the game, you know, him and his friends wanted to get the autographs of these players who, you know, most people are never going to know who they are. So we went and waited around outside the locker room, and I'm telling you, outside the locker room, it looked like, it was just like a little, there were so many gorgeous women that were waiting there, groupies. Now, these guys are double-A baseball players, so... It's you can't imagine just imagine what's what's outside major league locker rooms. I mean, and it's it's the same thing you see again in uh, rock stars where you have these women. I mean, what other profession is there? Literally, you can snap your fingers and somebody will come backstage. Many times underage, by the way, especially in the past, and will just have sex with you because of who you are. And I don't even know. Maybe they don't even talk. I mean, so that it's a, it's an existence, you know. Maybe it seems like a great fantasy when you're a young guy, but I I, I don't know how anybody it's it's not equatable to anything else that I can think of. Yeah, well, and 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 uh, out here, uh, golf is pretty big in, in Arizona, and uh, they have the Phoenix Open. And what you described sounds like the Phoenix Open, except the Phoenix Open, <laughs> you know, they have thousands of people, and they they have what they call the the bird's nest, and it, it's a famous. 19th hole party uh, underneath a tent and it's got alcohol, it's got bands, mm-hmm. it's got all this stuff. And, and every single woman is out there for that event. Mm-hmm. And uh, they don't like golf, but uh, <laughs> it's an event that draws, you know, Mercedes and BMWs, single guys that with a lot of wealth, uh, athletes, and uh, every, every available single woman is out there for that event. So, it sounds very much like you described. Yeah, and, and that's why I uh, I used to get really angry when I heard about the the attitudes that athletes, especially athletes, most athletes don't have a good attitude towards the fans. You can just look in the autograph uh, sections of uh, when you read about experiences. Most of them aren't. Unfortunately, there's not, especially baseball players, which was my favorite sport. But you can almost understand how, because uh, these, uh, what does that do to your ego? I, I can't even imagine. Again, I mean, all at times in our life, all of us like our our egos are assuaged just by some good-looking girl knowing they like us or saying we're cute or something, and that that pumps up our ego. Imagine something like that, where you're walking into a situation where there are tons and tons of gorgeous women that just want to be with you for who you are. They, you don't, you could be the biggest jerk in the world. They don't care. It's what you are. Like they're after a thing. So how, I don't know how you could have a normal ego in a situation like that, whether it's a, a rock star or a, an athlete, high profile athlete or uh, uh, an A movie actor. So I, I, I do, I do cut him a little slack now because I can, I can almost, I mean, look at this thing we, in my area, we just went through the Johnny Depp <laughs> Amber Heard trial. And yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't follow it much just because I, I found it really stupid. I just thought, I just, I, I love Johnny Depp, but he is pretty much, you know, he's, he's so far out there that, uh, you know, it's, you can't relate to him as a person. He's a great actor, but it's a really, see why he can play those parts so well. Cause he's, he seems, he's perfect for it, but I mean, look at if you watched any of that or know any of it. I mean, these people aren't real. They're just they're living by rules that the rest of us can't live by. Right. Yeah. I mean, he walked into a courtroom with his with half of his finger off, and um, uh, it was very. And what's sad is that he was a great, great actor, and he was so bold in a lot of his roles and his yes. younger, and um, and what he's become, and and and. And for him to, I mean, he had to have known that he was going to be opening up his life 
Um, I, but I guess he felt like he had nothing to lose because he can't get a job anymore. But again, there's that thing that we talk about, like, you know, you are, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're cock of the walk and then all of a sudden you become a joke and a punchline. And, uh, that's yeah. what's so tough about fame. You know, you, you have to, I think once you get fame, the, if you, if you can do it and Steve McQueen did it pretty well, that was, you, you keep a low profile. Daniel mm-hmm. Craig did that very well. You know, he he makes the Bond films, but you don't know much about him outside of that. He'll come out and he'll promote Bond, um, but you know he keeps he keeps that low profile. That's that's the way to do it. That's the way to succeed. That kind of life. Yeah, I, I don't know any other way, other way you could do it. Well, tell tell us a little bit about you. Did you, you wrote a book on Pete Maravich? I've always loved Maravich. Ken Norton, did you uh, write any other sports books or that? Tell tell us about how you came to write. Mar- I think Maravich is. Uh, and tragic, you know, he died by playing pickup basketball. I think he was only in his forties. Yep. Very, very sad, you know, undetected heart condition or whatever. But uh, still, in in many respects, just as a, again being a a teenager or whatever when he was playing, and I just was astounded, you know, playing trying to play basketball myself. Just the things he did that I still have never seen anybody yep. else do. Some of the passing, and it's it's amazing if you watch the highlights of it. Ken, how, how did you get drawn to Maravich? Well, I mean. He... I'm 58 years old, so he was the Pied Piper of our era. Um, anybody uh, who was a kid at that time, you know, I mean, he was just, he was something from outer space. And, you know, he had the long hair, the floppy socks. He spun the basketball on his finger. He dribbled between his legs. Of course, a young kid is going to gravitate towards that. Now, I will say, and I have to give a shout out to my other favorite player, and that was Elvin Hayes. All, mm-hmm. the, all you Bullets fans will, will know who I'm talking yes. about. Yes, I, yeah, I, was. I, I grew up in in the D.C. area at the time that they won the championship. The so, Big uh, E, yeah, me too. Yep. Yeah, yeah, they had a they, they had a great ball team, but the the Pistol was a national figure. Basketball at that time, you know, you rooted for your home team, but the Pistol was a national guy who crossed over into everybody's territory. Was really kind of the first of his kind. So, always um, fascinated, and then. You know, then he, then he retires, and, you know, then you kind of move on with your life, and then all of a sudden he appeared on uh, an all-star game uh, in an old-timer game, and they're interviewing him, and uh, he's talking about his his phase, his, his new life as a born-again Christian and how basketball didn't mean anything to him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm watching it, and I'm kind of jarred by, wow, this guy <laughs> didn't really care about his basketball life, and now he's talking about Jesus Christ. And, you know, that's, yeah. that's, to me, that's something jarring and interesting. And then not soon after, you know, he, uh, he dies uh, of a heart attack uh, uh, on a basketball court at the age of, of 40. And so yeah. the years went by, and then you don't see anybody like him at all. And you go, oh, this guy was an original. You know, I mean, you, yes. you kind of knew that before, but time gives you a, a better um, uh, feeling for um, – I, I always say you need a good 10 years for to feel out somebody's legend. Um, and so I decided, so what, what happened was, is that uh, I think in 1996, the NBA decided to name their all, all 50 list, all time 50 list. And because Maravich had a short career and it, it didn't end so well, I didn't, I didn't think for the life of me that he'd be on it. So he's listed and, you know, everybody, that everybody was there for that ceremony except for Pete Maravich, but his two boys uh, stepped in for him in his place. And it was like one of these really touching moments. And I went, 
I yeah. gotta do that book. <laughs> yeah, well, it's good you did. I have a uh, my next door neighbor. We you know we've lived here for a long time, and he's lived here longer than us. But he's like seventy five now. But he almost made the NBA. He went to the uh, I think it was the Philadelphia seventy sixers training camp as one of their final cuts, like in the early seventies. But he used to tell. I thought he maybe he was BSing because he told me how you know when I was coming, I, I used to play against Maravich all the time. And uh, so he brought me out some clippings. He showed me the box scores where, you know, that uh, he used to, I think it was in high school. He played against Maravich a lot. And uh, he talked about Maravich's socks that, you know, we knew that he was already doing that. He was kind of, he never, he never washed his socks. So uh, they really smelled bad. <laughs> and he said, that's, that's the, one of the real memorable things about him is that, you know, uh, the way I guess he was superstitious or whatever. So many athletes are superstitious, but uh, it was pretty cool, you know, hearing him talk because he 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 ran into he interacted with these athletes and uh, well, it's cool talking to somebody like you because you've you've uh, and, and I was mistaken I guess reading the book I guess it's written in Greg Laurie's uh, voice so uh, he's talking about his own connections but what connection. Uh, do you do you have what kind of showbiz connections do you have? And I could talk about my friend Susan Olson, who I was just texting with today, Cindy Brady and the Brady Bunch. But uh... well, it's funny you mentioned her because I, I know somebody who dated her, and um, I, I'll tell you something off, offline that's funny. Okay. <laughs> I, she, I, she, I won't embarrass her, but it's a funny story. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, um, uh, well, you know what happens is when you do books with people, you become their friends. So I became friendly with uh, Ken Norton, and I became friendly with Ruth Pointer. I'm still friendly with her, and I text her all the time. Um, through another book and through this book, uh, you know, uh, Richie Foray of Buffalo Springfield. Is yes, very, yes. Very, very kind. And it's it's funny, he, 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 he's retired from pastoring a church, but he was he was the pastor of a church for, I want to yeah. say, almost 30 years. And wow. then... Um, and then he resumed his career uh, with Buffalo Springfield. Now he plays uh, um, all the time um, now that he's retired. Um, you know, Rudy Sarzo was very, very kind and very good to me. Um, I did a book um, with Ken Mansfield called Rock and a Heart Place. And so then we profiled 10 rock stars who became Christians. And so, uh, you know, with, with the, this new book, it's just a little bit different because we talk about the decades. Um, but But the other book we really got into – who these people were, and I had to sit down and I had to talk to them and um, interview them, and, and you know, you become friends with them. I'm friendly with a couple of the guys in the group Collective Soul, um, Shane Evans, their, their former drummer, uh, Will Turpin, who's their bassist. Um, friendly with them, um, uh, I, and I think they they understand that I I I'm not a critic. I enjoy music. I enjoy music for the right reasons, and I'm not critical of music because I feel like you can't say this is the best and this is the worst because music is very subjective. Um, on the other hand, when, when they do ask me for advice, like for example, one of, one of these folks said, Oh, I'm thinking about putting out an EP. Uh, and you know, just getting those songs out there. I said, eh, mistake. I said, from a PR standpoint, you should put out an album because people, a critics take it seriously and it gets you interviews and B the fans won't remember the EP. They'll they'll remember your albums, but they won't remember an EP. So he said, "That's good advice." <laughs> so you you earn people's trust by dispensing advice that's good for them in their career and and looking out for them. So that's that's how I 
been able to to keep and maintain those friendships. Well, that's great. Now, did you, uh, and uh, you might not want to mention it if you did, but in, in researching this and researching people uh, in the music industry that are, are Christians, did you, what I found in my own life, and I, I'm sure Chuck would probably agree with me on this, is that uh, I, I've known a lot of people that are born in Christians. And unfortunately, more often than not, in my experience now, somebody like Bob Wilson is an exception, and, and certainly other people I've known are exception. A lot of them don't walk the walk. They talk to talk. They don't. They don't live up to it. Let's put it that way. Right. So I mean, has that? And I, I would imagine it's much harder for somebody that's in that kind of occupation to walk the walk because uh, you know it's, it's always easier to talk to talk. Any anybody can you know can espouse things and, and be higher than holier than now. But to actually live your life like that, that's not an easy thing to do. So did, did you? And you might you probably wouldn't want to mention it if you did. Did you? Did you find any? hypocrites in this group like you you do in the public at large unfortunately with uh, some christians well in in the prior book that i mentioned rock and a heart place uh we we found some people that after they started showing some behavior we said perhaps we shouldn't chronicle them so we didn't call anybody out we just said okay we won't chronicle these people we wanted but so so with this book we knew who the people were greg knew them they would, you know, like, for example, Carrie Livgren of um, Kansas came yeah. to one of Greg's churches, um, played. Um, he also knew he he also went to a Bible study with Donna Summer. So he, he was able to uh, correctly judge people by their fruit, um, people that that live it. Um, so there, there really wasn't any of that this time around. Well, that's good. That's good. So now how about your own personal um experience how did you uh, at what point in your life did you turn to christ i mean were you did you have a wild period before that like some of these guys did or, or did you just have you always been a person of faith well I've, I've i was raised in a very strong christian household and um my parents um are my dad just passed away he 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 got coronavirus two years ago and he was mm-hmm. 83 and my mom um, is perhaps the strongest example of a Christian woman I know. And I always, I always laugh when I say this. I say, I, "Mom, I don't think you've ever sinned in your life," and uh, <laughs> I don't think she has. So I've had two exceptional parents. So I was never rebellious growing up, uh, um, but but the way I look at it is, you know, a lot of these artists came from a completely different background than me, mm-hmm. and. Because of that, I'm able, I think, to have some empathy in my writing and in my observation of them because I had it pretty good growing up. You know, I didn't, you know, a lot, a lot of the folks had it completely differently. They, they might have had parents who were alcoholics um, or they were running from a bad situation. So they got judged pretty quickly. Um, and my, my role in, in, in chronicling people is not to judge them but to try and give uh, some perspective and some context where they're coming from. I see. There's a question from the chat room about uh, Oz Fox, the guitarist from the band Striper. Do you have any information on him? No, but I did do a book called uh, uh, Jesus Music, and and in there we we chronicled Michael Sweet, and um, um, so I did a whole chapter on Striper, but... I, I focused on him, but not Oz Fox. But I will tell you this, uh, the Striper Fellows were uh, definitely um, 
when they first came out, they were they were definitely on fire for the Lord, and they were not fake, and they were truly authentic, and um, uh, they they caught a lot of crap from um, from critics and Christians alike. So they got it from both ends. Yeah, I don't I don't know much about them, but um, so so you turn to. So you obviously you sound like you're a pretty big sports fan as well. Have you written any other books about sports, or just on Maravich and Norton? Well, and I also did a book with a basketball player, David Thompson. The oh know, yes, in- yes, and um, see the it with uh, uh, Monty Tao and uh, what's the other guy that was there? The, uh, Tom Burleson, right? Right. Yeah. So yeah, I did a book yeah. with him. Um, I've edited a couple of uh, of uh, sports books just for friends. Like I, I edited a book on Nolan Ryan. Um, I, I'll tell you what, I've, I'm a old school sports guy. I, after the eighties, I stopped following sports. Like I'll, I'll watch the Super Bowl, but, um, I, I feel like, um, I'm with you. <laughs> uh, my time is much better spent, you know, writing than, um, you know, spending, uh, three to four hours. Uh, and if you go in person, it's, it's probably like a six day and all day event at a sporting event. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. It's just not for me anymore. It, it, it was, it was part of my life a long time ago. But, you know, the funny thing is, is when when um, your your sports, your the your the sports guys today could be the the age of your grandkids. You know, you you kind of have a tendency to stop following them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I remember how depressing it was when I realized, God, there's nobody playing professional sports that's older than me anymore. <laughs> I was like, like, wow, I don't, it's it's hard to. Uh, and then you look at some of these players, how old they are, and how many of them died. The ones that I grew up watching, but yeah, I would. I mean, I still. The only reason I follow the NFL at all is because I'm in. I've been in this fantasy football league for thirty some years. We were one of the first fantasy football leagues, so that's the only reason I've followed football for years is because of stupid fantasy football. So I don't even watch it normally. I don't really even care about teams and uh, baseball. I don't know. It just it just seems like it's been diluted and. The Nationals yeah. here won the World Series a couple of years ago. That was kind of exciting, but they've had an almost complete turnover. I think there's one or two players left from like two years ago. It's like there's there's no there's no sense of uh, you yeah. know there should have been a dynasty, but there's no. I don't even know who the players on the team are. Of course, they're doing so bad. I don't even follow them. So uh, I'm with well, you on it's, that. It's like they say people now follow uh, individuals in sports. They don't follow teams. When we were, we were growing up, I mean, you had a sense of team and community. And uh, I'll tell you this: I was I was a Dallas Cowboys fan from the Roger Staubach days. And you know, living in Washington D.C., uh, Sundays were uh, there. There were a lot of there were always a lot of you here in Washington D.C. I can tell you that. <laughs> but you know, they had such great rivalries, and um, boy, I really hated the Skins. But I, I tell you what, um, I respected. The, the city and the town because those were diehard fans and and now it's funny later you know years later on you read about one of the older skins you know from growing up in the 70s or the 80s and you get nostalgic and they're they're no longer your enemy um, right you you, you just, they're part of your childhood and uh you know you you want to go up and you want to shake your hand and say man i had so many great memories of you playing and it just it, it's no longer like that for me no, and we can't even uh, we can't even call you know the, the, this the team formerly known as the Redskins. Now they're the Commodores, and I, I'm trying to get a thing started where we're going to call them the Washington Commies, which is a, I think it's I think it's fitting. I, I think we should call them the Washington Commies, but uh, it, it would it would fit pretty well. So um, I, have, 
gotten the whole Redskin debacle. I'm so sorry. That just came out of my mouth. No, I, I, I think we're safe on it. And I, I'm a politically incorrect guy to the core, so I'm, I, that's, that would be one of the least controversial things I've ever said if I kept saying the Redskins. But I, I want to call them the commies. I just think it's a, it's a cute play on words, and it kind of it, it kind of shows how absurd all this stuff is. Not, not a, uh, well, whatever name they came up with, it was never going to be – it was never going to measure up. It just wasn't. No, and, and you know, just whether it's sports or uh, – or music, or I don't know how you feel about uh, and and uh, Chuck Ocelli, my producer, has been has been in music for a long time. Uh, in fact, he kind of put together that little instrumental opening, which I get people asking me about all the time. Wait, who is that? You know, it's it's a pretty cool little uh, riff. But um, uh, you know, think things have changed so much where I don't even know what music is now. Do you? I assume you sound like you were a big fan of rock and roll, like like I was, and most of us were. What what yeah. is there any rock and roll? Who's doing rock and roll today? I don't even I'm not even sure. Is there such a thing as rock and roll out there? Well, you know, in the book we tackle this, and we say that rock rock and roll has been replaced by technology. This is what the, the, the this is the first era in which um, teenagers they no longer want a car, they want an iPhone, and Steve Jobs is the new John Lennon, and that's just how and, and artists. Are no longer artists; they're brands. And you know, Kanye West, yeah, he's a rapper, but he's a brand, and uh, he's worth 1.8 million dollars, and that's because he sells uh, all sorts of products. And you know, I was just watching Justin Timberlake last night on a series called Candy on Hulu, and he's uh, <laughs> he's an entertainer. He, that's yeah. what these guys are. They don't want to be labeled as rock stars. They don't want to be labeled as singers. They are brands, and that's yeah. kind of where we are these days. And yeah. um, and if you were in their position, that's probably what you would want to do. You wouldn't want to put yourself uh, in, in, in a corner. Um, but that's just where we are these days. The music of our day, of the 60s and the 70s, those those were the guys that were talking to youth and speaking to youth and, uh, and, and creating music around the times. Right. And that just doesn't happen any longer. There's no call for that. Yeah, we, and we've we've come a long way, and I, you know, I'm friends on uh, on Facebook. When I was, I kind of cultivated these people when I was thinking of writing on Bard Fame, and so I, I had people like Eric Anderson, who I have some of his albums, uh, you know, Blue River, which Joni Mitchell sang a, a chorus on, it was a really nice song. Yeah, he had some, you know, good, good songs, and uh, uh, Danny O'Keefe, who had Good Time Charlie's Got the Blues, but a lot of other good songs too. There's there's so many people out there that there were the singer songwriter was. Big time in vogue, you know. When I was thinking of wanting to be one, Jackson Brown and people like that, Tom Petty and all, who, who followed in Dylan's footsteps, and of course Lennon and McCartney, where they're writing their own music. But I, other than I, I guess Taylor Swift, I think she still writes. Well, I admire her for that. I think she still writes all her material. I think, but I don't see anybody even doing that. Or are there even singers song? I mean, I guess the, these rappers. I, I, it's hard for me to understand even what rap is. I guess they. I guess they get credit for – are they making up their stuff? I guess they're making up their lyrics or whatever, or their beats. But I, I, the singer-songwriter, except for these ones that are holding on, that are still alive, is, is the singer-songwriter even out there now? Right. And what's, what's also sad is um, we play their music. They, the, the songs have now become commercials for big corporations. Um, every generation knows those songs. And yet, when they come in concerts, nobody wants them to play any new music. It's just the strangest 
phenomenon. I've seen, um, like I said, I'm a big follower of Collective Soul. They're one of the few groups that, that is now continuing to create new music, and their new music is just as good as their old music. Um, but, you know, you got a guy like Paul McCartney or The Stones, nobody necessarily wants to hear their new music. I mean, they might, they might come no. out with it, put out, put it out, but and it gets played in the first week of its release, but they, sure. they aren't in classics, you know, they're not banned on the run. Um, they're not imagined. So it will be very interesting for me to see where music goes in the next 50 years. I mean, it'll always be important to youth, but um, there, there, there was a time in the 60s and 70s where it kind of pollinated, where there was politics and there was pop culture and there was music and it kind of, everything was um, re revolved around that. As a matter of fact, to give you some statistics, I think in 1972, the music industry outgrossed the movie industry. Can you? Yeah. Can you? Time that was. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, our I mean, our I spent. You know, that's why I don't feel bad when I download songs from the internet because I spent so much money. I've I might probably have a thousand LPs and tons of cassettes, and I went to you know many, many, many concerts all the time, T-shirts and memorabilia and all that. I spent a lot, and it's uh, one of my uh, friends now, Graham Parker, was a singer-songwriter big time in the 70s and 80s. I loved him. He was one of, one of my favorites. He's not that well-known, but so he was telling me, you know, money was everywhere at that time, but there, there was only a period, I think Mick Jagger said that. It was about a 15-year period where yep. these guys got incredibly wealthy, but before that, and since then now, I mean, they're getting almost nothing from Spotify and uh, uh these iTunes and everything, they pay them such a small royalty rate. Uh, so I, I don't know how many people are making much money in music as, at this point. Well, and that's why you see these, these guys on tour all the time. That's the only way that they're, they're really making any music, money for music. So uh, the guys from Collective Soul, they are on the road 60% of the time of the year. And, um, you know, that's, that's a lot, a lot of time to be away from your family. Yeah, and and how how old are they? How old are they? Well, you know, they're starting to get into their fifties. Um, yeah, yeah, that's too so, old to be doing. Well, and and you know, and, and with touring now, there's no. It used to be you toured around a record, and then you then you took a break, and then you wrote yeah. songs. That's not the case anymore. You tour all the time. Yeah. Uh, you 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 tour uh, where you haven't been in a year, but you're always consistently touring. And that Absolutely. that that has to be old, but on the other hand, they're making a living doing what they love. So there's it's just it's just sad that um, that and I, I do remember that quote from your book uh, about what what Mick Jagger said. He's absolutely right on the money, and and I think he's talking about that era of CD um, CDs when CDs came out. That's when artists were really making money and people were going to live shows, and you know it was just. And, and and they were getting paid for for everything that they did. They were getting what they called mailbox money, where they you know it just showed up, um, it just showed up uh, a check just showed up in their in their mailbox. And it's it's funny to hear I've heard artists say when I used to have money, and mm -hmm. it's you know like I used to have a lake house, I used to have this, I when yeah. you know when I way back in the good old day. But I, but and I, and I, that, I think that's over for them. Yeah, well, I think probably it's hard for them to some people to uh, to to give up on it as well. I mean, I saw Ringo Starr and his All Star Band a few years ago, and we saw McCartney about Tim McCartney still tours. Uh, 
the Rolling Stones still tour. I mean, they, none of those people need money, but I, I they they must have some love for it if they're going out, you know, 80 years old or whatever. And still, yeah. I mean, it's amazing that they can even do that. But they must really love it to be doing it. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's 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 the adulation. I think um, that's that that is now their addiction. I I remember seeing a documentary on Aerosmith, and that that was like that replaced that finally replaced the drugs. Like, this is what we live for. This is what we want. And, uh, you know, because other than that, you, you, you get anonymity and, and, and that nobody wants that either. No, nobody absolutely wants that. It's, it's, uh, well, it's a strange business. And as you can tell by my books, obviously that I'm, uh, I remain very interested in it. I have lots of different interests, but, uh, the, the idea of flame, of fame just fascinates me because, you know, one of the, uh, one of the people I've had on the show, and unfortunately, that the show we had on a while back, uh, lightning struck producer Chuck O'Telly's house during the show, so we were cut off about halfway through, but uh, it knocked the network off. But I hope to have her on. Her name's Laura Rubin again, but she was um, she was part of Andy Warhol's group uh, mm-hmm. back in, in the '60s, and of course, he is the ultimate. You know, everybody's going to be famous for 15 minutes in the future. I think we've kind of reached that stage now where you have these, uh, especially with the YouTube and the, the YouTube stars and the, what was the guy that, uh, what was that, uh, that Korean guy a few years back that was famous for like 15 minutes with uh, some stupid song, Psy or something. I can't remember what his name was. There, there, there's, that, that's what we have now, the cash me out girl, you know, things like that. Yeah. As a matter of fact, that, that, that's the subject of my next book with, with Greg Laurie. It's called Fame. And in there, we ha- we we have the uh, we we have the quote from and Andy Warhol with you know talking about the fact that social media has turned everybody pretty much into uh, um, people seeking fame and, and young people especially that's what they want most is that they want fame and they don't what they don't understand is that um, what what they put out there now can haunt them forever. Absolutely. Well, we're just about we only had about a minute left. So I want I want to give you the uh, the last bit of the show to promote anything you want to promote. Tell the people where they can find you. It's uh, the floor is yours. Well, thank you. Uh, well, I'm here to promote Lennon, Dylan, Alice and Jesus. And that's written by my by Greg Laurie and Marshall Terrell. And you can find that on Amazon dot com. Um, and then in August, you can look for a book called Fame with Greg Laurie and Marshall Terrell. Um and that will also have an accompanying documentary as well. So I appreciate you uh, having me on the show to talk about my favorite subject because it's so multifaceted it, and it's um, and it's a double-edged sword, too. Absolutely. It sure is. Well, thank you so much, Marshall Terrell. We really enjoyed you having on your show. So uh, everybody look for his book. Do you have a website or anything that I can find you at? I do not. Uh, I just, uh, but I have a web page on Amazon.com if they want to look up me up and uh, look at the thirty books I've done. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Marshall Terrell. We'll be right back after these words. In a time of fake news, fake politicians, and fake fiat currency, it's getting harder to find the genuine article. That's why when it comes to precious metals, I call the team I can trust. 
This is David Knight for my friends at Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange. Proudly veteran-owned and operated, Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange is your home for gold and silver coins, bullion, jewelry, and more. Prices and inventory are updated daily, so you get the most competitive possible pricing. And when it's time to sell your gold and silver items, they pay top dollar. Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange also accepts and deals in Bitcoin. Call or text the owner, Tony Arterburn, today at 888-667-1836. That's 888-667-1836. Or just go to wisewolf.gold. From bullion to Bitcoin, Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange. Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange. WallStreetWindow.com Gold, silver, the stock market. WallStreetWindow.com Perhaps you're invested deeply. Perhaps you're not in deep enough. Maybe you're thinking about getting started. WallStreetWindow.com Michael Swanson, the brilliant author of The War State understood these trends professionally for many years and now he gives you the benefit of his knowledge wallstreetwindow.com go there now go there now go there now hi this is Cindy Sheehan you're listening to the Donald Jeffrey show the views expressed by callers, co-hosts, or anyone else who happens to get on the air at Ocelli.com do not necessarily reflect the views of Ocelli.com or Chuck Ocelli. And we are not responsible for any stupidity which might ensue. Thank you. In Denial, Secret Wars with Airstrikes and Tanks by Larry Hancock. Secret Wars became a staple of U.S. covert operations that are still happening today. Larry Hancock's book, In Denial, rips the cover off many of them. Using new files, it exposes things about the Bay of Pigs that no one has ever written about before. It shows why it really failed and why the United States did not learn from it. Secret Wars became a staple of U.S. covert operations that are still happening today. It also shows why other countries today are doing secret operations with more success. This is the book that puts what some want to deny into the light. In Denial, Secret Wars with Airstrikes and Tanks. Larry Hancock. For more information, go to Larry-Hancock.com. Pick up your copy of In Denial at Amazon.com in digital or physical form. Hi, this is Ron Paul. You're listening to The Donald Jeffrey Show. Support Chuck O'Chelly at O'Chelly.com. Smoke free. A diversified multicultural postmodern deconstruction is politically, anatomically, and ecologically incorrect. I've been uplinked and downloaded, I've been inputted and outsourced, and all the upside of downsizing, and all the downside of upgrading. I'm a high-tech low life, a cutting-edge state-of-the-art bicoastal multitasker, and I can give you a gigabyte in a nanosecond, nanosecond, nanosecond. I'm new wave, but I'm old school, and my inner child is outward bound. I'm a hot-wired, heat-seeking, warm-hearted, cool customer, voice activated and biodegradable. I interface on a database, and databases in cyberspace, so I'm interactive, I'm hyperactive, and from time to time I'm radioactive. Behind the eight ball, ahead of the curve, riding the wave, dodging the bullet, pushing the envelope. I'm on point, on task, on message. Off drugs. I got no need for coke and speed. I got no urge to binge and purge. I'm in the moment on the edge, over the top, but under the radar. A high concept, low profile, medium range ballistic missionary. A streetwise smart bomb. A top gun bottom feeder. I wear power ties, I tell power lies, I take power naps, I run victory laps. I'm a totally ongoing Bigfoot slam dunk rainmaker with a proactive outreach. A raging workaholic. A working, a working, a working rageaholic. Out of rehab and in denial. I got a personal trainer, a personal shopper, a personal assistant, and a personal agenda. You can't shut me up, you can't dumb me down. Because I'm tireless and I'm wireless. I'm an alpha male on beta blockers. I'm a non believer and an overachiever. Laid back but fashion forward. Up front, down home, low rent, high maintenance. Super size, long lasting, high definition. 
Efficient, fast acting, oven ready, and built to last. I'm a hands on foot, loose knee jerk head case, prematurely post traumatic, and I have a love child who sends me hate mail. But I'm feeling, I'm caring, I'm healing, I'm sharing. A supportive, bonding, nurturing primary caregiver. My output is down, but my income is up. I take a short position on the long bond, and my revenue stream has its own cash flow. I read junk mail, I eat junk food, I buy junk bonds, I watch trash sports. I'm gender specific, capital intensive, user friendly, and lactose intolerant. I like rough sex. I like rough sex. I like tough love. I use the F word in my email, and the software on my hard drive is hardcore, no soft porn. I bought a microwave at a mini mall, I bought a minivan at a mega store. I eat fast food in the slow lane. I'm toll free, bite sized, ready to wear, and I come in all sizes. A fully equipped factory authorized, hospital tested, clinically proven, scientifically formulated medical miracle. I've been pre washed, pre cooked, pre heated, pre screened, pre approved, pre packed, post dated, freeze dried, double wrapped, vacuum packed, and I have an unlimited broadband capacity. I'm a rude dude, but I'm the real deal. Lean and mean, cock blocked and ready to rock. Rough, tough, and hard to bluff. I take it slow, I go with the flow, I ride with the tide, I get gliding in my stride. Driving and moving, sailing and spinning, jiving and grooving, wailing and winning. I don't snooze, so I don't lose. I keep the pedal to the metal and the rubber on the road. If you want to play blind man, ochelli.com. Revelation through conversation. Go ahead, caller. Hey, I'm interested in the truth about the JFA assassination. Right. Well, what do you want to know? Judy Baker's wild claim. Oswald girlfriend. He knew Ruby and Barry. Cancer weapons. Really? I imagine I could claim I have four wheels. It doesn't make me a wagon, but okay. Oswald was on the kill team and trying to prevent the murder of John Kennedy. Come on now. Has a real effort on the JFA assassination built into her claim? Go to Amazon.com. Enter Judith Baker in her own words. You'll get results for a digital copy of a book where Walt Brown utilizes her own words and the known evidence in the case to get at, well, <laughs> a different perspective, let's say. You can get Judith Barry Baker in her own words from the author himself, signed if you request it, by contacting Dr. Brown at K-I-A-S-J-F-K at AOL.com. It's a fun book and it actually dissects the many, many fantastic claims. Judith Barry Baker in her own words. Thank you for all the great information. Hi there, this is John Barbara, and you're listening to the most informed man in America, my friend, fellow author, and raconteur, the great Donald Jeffries Show. Chili.com. Revelation through conversation. You are listening to the Donald Jeffries Show. And welcome back to the Donald Jeffries Show. If you guys liked uh, Marshall Terrell talking about showbiz, which, you know, is one of my subjects when I'm not talking about conspiracies and crimes and cover-ups, corruption. And so we'll, we'll kind of go more into that now. The phone lines are open now, so I love hearing from you guys. Give me a call at 319-527-5016. Again, that's 319-527-5016. So let's, you know, there's a lot that obviously has been happening this week. Uh, the uh, I want to talk a lot about the... Uh, Old Valde, the Valde shooting, obviously. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to analyze that. You know, basically, uh, you know, I'm skeptical about all these things. And, and people that have read my stuff understand that. But I'm just, I, I actually think that uh, 
that people should hope that that was a drill because if, if I'm just going to analyze it as reported because uh, it's absolutely absurd. I mean, just the and I think if it was ever to have a dialogue about police in this country, um, if you know we're we're led to let let's just look at this story. You have a uh, a guy who, uh, of course, the, the narrative as it does in all these things changes constantly. The early reports about this had the young guy. First of all, they had him as a transgender, by the way. And I thought, okay, a Hispanic transgender. What, what is, what's happening here? So that definitely doesn't fit the narrative. But uh, at any rate, they quickly dropped the, the transgender thing. So, but this guy Ramos, originally we were told he was being chased by the border patrol, and uh, they were exchanging gunfire with him. Now, again, this is before he got into the school. So, of course, my my. First question: What obviously going to be? How? First of all, why is the border patrol chasing him, and how do they chase him and exchange gunfire with him, and he still gets in the school to kill a bunch of kids? Somebody's, you know, <laughs> explain that to me. Uh, and I know, you know, just after I wrote my article on, and again, people, please, uh, you check out my Substack if you haven't already. I write there regularly now. It's uh, well, my now have a great new website thanks to Tony Arterburn. It's DonaldJeffries.media. Everything is uh, all everything related to me is on there. You can get all my books there, uh, information about this show and my other show I protest. Um, my blog, my old blog is there, the archives in the blog, and uh, the Substack writings under articles. So you can find out you know anything anything you need to know about me on DonaldJeffries.media. But I wrote. Uh, Last week, I wrote an article about the, the, the shooting. And as I talked about, you know, it's, these things these things change so much. And, and the reaction, I, I got a lot of reaction from it. I had three people uh, in Texas alone that sent me uh, information that their, their kids go to those Texas schools. And they say, look, you know, these, there's a, the security is so tight at these schools. Parents have to be buzzed in. Uh, they have bulletproof glass everywhere. So... And all the doors are locked all the time. So needless to say, that doesn't seem to fit in with a, a shooter being able to to make his way in something. Like where, where, where's his, where's security? And nobody ever asked that. When these things happen, it invariably turns to guns. The gun did it. You know what? What, what about the security? Supposedly, as, as many of these things that have happened, uh, security has been beefed up each time. And it's harder and harder. And in many cases, a lot of these schools have become fortresses. They're like little prisons. But it's very hard for anybody to even come. You know, when I was my last uh, child, my youngest child graduated uh, in 2012 from high school. But the early 2000s, uh, I mean, you, you had to sign in. Visitors signed in. And I think uh, near the end, you had to get like a, a, a You'd sign in and you got a little sticker, you know, visitor sticker or whatever, but <clears throat> the doors weren't locked and uh, nothing like that. I never dreamed there could be a shooter walking around when I was in there, but it used to be a lot easier. Now uh, they claim it's not. So, again, why was it so easy here? So the narrative and originally they, they said that the shooter was uh, exchanging gunfire with the school resource officer, officer as well. Okay, that original that then that claimed uh, they later made this. Oh no, that's mistaken. That didn't happen. I mean, how do you mistake the border patrol thing? I don't understand that. That came out, and no one's talked about it since then. But so eventually, the narrative settled around that this guy wrecked his truck. Now his truck was 
it seemed like it was a pretty expensive vehicle for a kid that was working at Wendy's, I think. And I heard he was living with his grandmother in a just an incredibly small place, like 400 some square feet or something, sleeping on the floor in a mattress or something. Now, that was originally early on. These tidbits come out and then they kind of drop it because it doesn't fit the rest of the narrative. So how does somebody not very likely that he had much that he kind of savings account? I don't think. How, how does he save up to buy a truck like that? And more importantly, the rest of the information is kind of a Lee Harvey Oswald thing. Did he drive or didn't? Didn't he? Uh, where they're saying, well, no, actually, he didn't know how to drive. So there's a kid who doesn't know how to drive, doesn't remotely have the money for it, wrecking a, a you know a, a fairly expensive truck. So, okay, that you get in a wreck. Usually, I don't know where you guys come from, but usually when there's a car wreck anywhere around here, uh, Cops pretty much show up, you know, not not long after it happened. So, but the phone, the the, the crash did not uh, attract the attention of the cops. But okay, so you you have the driver get out of the vehicle and start immediately firing a gun wildly for twelve minutes. That's the story we're told. He got out of the vehicle, he started shooting at a local funeral home. I guess it was across the street, which is by the way, it's kind of a who builds a school across the street from the funeral home? I mean, that's kind of, I'm not sure who had that idea. It's kind of macabre. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I'd want to go to school across the street. I mean, that's to me, I find that bizarre. Nobody else has commented on that, but so he's shooting wildly for 12 minutes, 12 minutes. So in 12 minutes, first of all, you had the the car crash. Then you have the, the person in the vehicle getting out, wielding a gun and shooting indiscriminately. Somehow that doesn't attract the attention of law enforcement. It's the same law enforcement that you know is hiding behind bushes and eating donuts and it's three in the morning and trying to catch somebody for not coming to a complete stop at a stop sign or making an illegal U-turn. Somehow they're not there. Okay, so how does he get into school? Well, we were told originally that uh, one of the somehow with all this great security, some teacher and I, teachers nameless. They never name these people because no one's ever held accountable for any of these things. Teacher leaves uh, the side door, I think, uh, uh, propped open. Okay. <laughs> that didn't violate the, the intense security regulations. But now, we, now we're told in the last couple of days, well, no, actually, even though that was, that was out there as part of the narrative for days, no, no, t- no actually, that's, that's not true. The security footage, now we've not seen any other security footage because usually in these things, one of the strangest aspects of them is that the security cameras always fail. Now, the security uh, cameras you got on on uh, for to get speeders at traffic lights they never fail, but uh, whenever there's a school shooting, uh, you can almost guarantee or mass casualty shooting. Ah, the security cameras fail; they weren't working. You know, Sandy Hook, uh, uh, Pulse nightclub things. Like, ah, they just the cameras weren't working. Okay, all right, okay, they never are. But so, but apparently they worked long enough for them to identify the fact or didn't identify, but they found that the teacher actually had gone back inside the building and slammed the door shut as she was supposed to do. So how do you explain it? Well, then they said, well, but the the door didn't, it failed to automatically lock like it was supposed to. It's supposed to, I guess, automatically lock when they do it. And it didn't do that. So this is the story as it sounds now for that. Now, okay, but once he gets in, the most controversial part of all this and the one that has uh, actually achieved some attention not enough in my book, because I don't think anything will be done, uh, is that now I've heard the number 19 police officers, but I'm confused because I think there were more than 19 police officers there. But uh, a bunch of police officers descended, as they should, on the school. 
And instead of immediately rushing into the school, they just congregated around outside. And when the parents, quite naturally, the, you know, the histrionic parents or hysterical parents are saying, what's, you know, they, they actually stopped the parents. And, uh, you know, I don't think they handcuffed anybody, but they I think they pushed one woman down. They tasered somebody, um, you know, typical cop stuff. But, you know, usually they can uh, refrain from doing that in, in a situation like this, you know, when there's uh, apparently a shooting at an elementary school, but they couldn't stop themselves here. But then we're also told that number, that same number, 19, that there 19 police officers were inside the building. They went inside and just kind of hung out in the hall outside the classroom where a shooting was going on and uh, where children were dialing 911 and calling for help, uh, terrified. And these cops stood outside in the hallway. The door was locked. Now, how many times have we read about cops on, on no-knock, unconstitutional no-knock raids of homes? And usually, probably half the time, they break down the wrong door of the wrong house. Uh, they love breaking down doors. I mean, this is something they, they, if they're gung-ho about it, typically. But that's when it's a, an average homeowner, it might be a pothead or something, and poses no threat to them. In this case, there was apparently an active shooter there. So they were you know, being the kind of cowards that, unfortunately, they all too often are. In this case, I don't know whether we're any other word to describe it, but we're told they waited around for an hour, an hour. Uh, this is just mind boggling to me. And then the narrative says that a janitor who I don't know what the janitor was doing for an hour, uh, brought them the key to the door eventually an hour. So <laughs> the janitor took an hour to give them the key. They took an hour to find the janitor. I mean, and since when do they worry about keys? They love knocking down doors typically. But this is this is what we're told is the uh, is the story. Oh, we have a caller on the line. Caller, you're on the air. Oh, hello. This oh. is Jimmy James. Jimmy James, how you doing, Jimmy? I'm doing all right. I was listening to your commentary, and I just kind of wanted to add to it. My, the new Jimmy James talking point is, for now on, every time these people want to talk about so-called gun control, I'm going to start bringing up constriction and bringing back the national draft. <laughs> okay, there you go. Sure. Because I think that's more... That would actually address the issue at hand instead of the inanimate objects, the guns. Well, yeah, I mean, that's they try to make the inanimate objects the problem. And that's why this is uh, there's so much to critique here. I mean, the police, the, the, the school security obviously lacks uh, the police. It, it excusable. I mean, every one of those police officers should be drummed out of law enforcement. No questions asked. The guy who gave the order, I forget his name, Gennaro or something, uh, this is the guy who gave the order to stand down inexplicably. From what I understand, he's just been elected to the city council. So he's got to go into bigger and better things. And then I didn't even get to this part where uh, they they make these parents who are grief-stricken, they're wondering if their kids have been shot. I mean, imagine that feeling. Instead of releasing the kids after the shooter's dead, instead of releasing the kids to their open arms of their parents – Instead, they route them to a civic center, and they make them wait there. And what I understand, they waited as long as nine hours till almost midnight to find out if their child's children are alive or not, and they subjected them to DNA tests. Now, 
Where are the Hispanic right groups about that? Because I've never heard anything like that. I'm not saying it's because they were Hispanic, but it's not standard operating procedure. And I don't see anybody focusing on it. But anyhow, I'm sorry to take up your time. No, I just, you know, everything about this is wrong. I mean, and the cops are definitely, we're in the wrong. I don't know what kind of cops these are. You run to the gun. Well, yeah, I mean, isn't that why you're there? I mean, and one of the uh, superiors even said some ridiculous thing about, well, if they had run in, they could have got shot, too. It's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that's well, the unfortunate you know, part of it. <laughs> the national standard right now is during a school shooting when you're dealing with children, if they're barricaded, then you do what they did. But if there's an active shooting, you run to the gun. Right. And it just, it just, it just, it just, the bottom line is they had all those people there. And that's why, again, people need to look at uh, uh, what what we're paying for here. And I, that's why, and, and you know, everybody who knows me, if you've read my stuff, and maybe I'm too anti-cop. I, I get accused of that all the time. A lot of people in my family, because I, I go off on one of my anti-cop I mean, I, I felt that way forever. And uh, I just, I, I, I hate to. Uh, uh, policing for profit and all law enforcement is policing for profit now. And this, I think you see, this is what the culminates in when you have an actual situation where they need to do something significant to earn their pay and earn the fact that, okay, this is why we have you here. They do nothing. So, you know see, what, at this point, go ahead. That's I'm sorry. The one, that's the kind of the problem though. Unlike the military, it is just a job. Being cop at the end of the day, they're just civilians doing a job. And unfortunately, the Supreme Court ruled that in the mid-'80s because two cops stood there off duty and watched a woman get murdered. Yes, that's and I, I brought that up in my article. I, I just wrote a special memorial day. <laughs> Thank you for your servitude, where I talked about the military but also talked about uh, police as well. And you're right. The Supreme Court has ruled that the, the police have are under no obligation to protect the public now. So, first of all, they ought to, anytime you hear any of them say to protect and serve, say, well, no, no, what do you mean? Legally, you don't, they said you don't have to. So then isn't it right, Jimmy Jean, to ask the question, if you're not there to protect the public, what are you there for? To harass us by handing out tickets at the end of the month to meet your quota? What I mean, if you're not going to protect us. At this point, I can't argue with the well, defund the police people. That and I got to make sure we get our COVID shots done. Right, right. I mean, we need we need police, but we don't need the police under the policing for profit system. That that's the problem. That's why all the all the protests, Black Lives Matters. Nobody talked about asset forfeiture. All the the legalized theft that goes on under asset forfeiture, where <clears throat> they steal people's homes and cars and property. All the time. And the courts have ruled that they can do that. And the courts have also ruled they're not an obligation to protect the public. So what are they? Why are we paying? Why are we paying people to act like that walking around armed? And how many times have they shot unarmed people because they you know, felt threatened or something? Why are we paying them that when they are under no obligation to protect us? That's the question I'm asking. I have no good answer, Don. I think that's a very good question. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's I mean, that's uh, that's why I really can't I can't argue with the the defund the police. I mean, I'd like to see it defund the asset forfeiture, defund policing for profit. But I mean, I know I'm the only one talking about this this way. I mean, the, con- the conservatives 
always go into they put their feet down typically and say, you know, cops have it hard. And they do. I, I wouldn't want to be a cop. They don't make that much money. And, and they do. They, they are at risk of getting shot. I wouldn't want their job. But uh, they take the job for a reason. And if they if they had their priorities straight, that maybe they wouldn't uh, maybe they wouldn't be scared in situations like that if they focused on let's stopping real violent crime. Let's deal with real gangbangers, and you, we, you and I both know they no, they, no, they stay. No, they, we they can't st- talk about the real issues. No, no, <laughs> we can't talk about the cultural and societal breakdown. No, it's the guns, time. Come on, <laughs> yeah, it's the guns, and that's and that's so. And of course, the left it, it ends up being the left is just you know we need gun control. What are we going to stop the guns? And which it's just it's so stupid. The debate is so dumb, and then the right just. Uh, Exactly. Says, no, so no, dump it right back. I'm going to turn the tables on them. The every time they start talking about gun control, I'm going to advise every Republican to start talking about constriction and bring them back the draft. There you go. There you go. Well, we need to. All right, I, well, but I'll, I'll let you get at it. I, I want to keep listening. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jimmy James. Yep. Great caller, regular caller. Appreciate the support, but. Um, so yeah, I mean, and it's you know, it's no fun being uh, you know, like uh, my son was saying when I when I wrote the uh, thank you for your service. It's come kind of become a, a holiday tradition with me every Memorial Day. <laughs> I pretty much write a an anti war screed when everybody else is uh, worshiping the war dead. But I just yeah, you know, I went into that whole thing was, you know, I, I talked about what, what is a hero? You know, what does, and, and I think, again, we're misguided. We look at the, whether it's it's sports heroes, where most of these guys are, first of all, that's, you know, I, I love Norm McDonald. And uh, thanks to Chris Graves is in the chat room who turned me on to Norm. Uh, man, this guy's just incredible. But I, I love his rant against teachers saying, you know, heroes, you know, what, what, what do you think is heroic? You know, but they're, obviously they're not heroes, but I would look at that for, you know, cops, I mean, clearly they're not. Were they heroic? No, they they might have been. They would have been heroic if they had charged in right then and 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 overwhelmed the shooter and, and stopped kids from being killed. That would have been really heroic. It's like burnt, you know firefighters uh, going in a burning building and rescuing a baby. Uh, that's heroic. But most of what we call heroic is not because most 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 policemen obviously it's not heroic giving out tickets, stopping somebody uh, because they made an illegal U-turn or. I mean, I, I got a ticket one time on an Easter morning sunrise service when I was driving around near Washington D.C. trying to figure out where to park years ago. Where they, it's like, and the cop gave me a ticket. As I said, look, I, I was going the wrong way. I said, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not used to driving in D.C. Can you tell me where I can park? No, Happy Easter. Here's your ticket. And um, that's the, that's the kind of again, that's policing for profit. Maybe they probably get double bonus points for giving somebody a ticket uh, on holidays. But it's. Uh, that's that's not heroic in my book. And uh, when I was writing about moral days, is you know I I don't think that soldiers are heroic. I just don't. I think they're they're hapless, not heroic. I feel sorry for them. They're put in harm's way. And uh, to be honest with you, I don't think we've had a war that I you know that I that we should have fought since the War of eighteen twelve because we were actually attacked then. Our shores were attacked. So okay, then I'm I'm going to take up arms too and defend my, my family and my home. But the rest of the time. All the others have been bankers' wars, and that probably was a bankers' war too. But at least we were were attacked, and so it wasn't a it was a war of defense. But uh, 
But to call them heroes is, is really a slap in the face to people. And I've talked about people I've known in my life uh, that were real heroes. I knew a guy named Bill Kratzer that uh, was when I was a blue collar worker and doing this hard, physically labored job as a young guy where I was pulling these thousand pound carts around. It was, really, it was a great workout. It kept you in great shape. But uh, and we had a lot of free time in between the intense physical labor, but it was a hard physical job. And this guy was older. He was probably 40s mid to late 40s, I'm guessing, and he was dying of cancer. And uh, he he was one of the part-timers, and I heard his story, and I, I didn't have enough nerve to talk too much about it, but it was you know, it was so sad. And that was then, that was probably 80s, uh, where even then, before things got so bad, medical costs were such, he had a family who he was going to leave behind, and he had to to work that hard physical labor job every weekend, every holiday was a part-timer and he had another full-time job so that they could make ends meet. And I, you know, I can't think of anything too much more heroic than that. That's, that's to me, that's heroic in my book. And then my, I talk about my old friend, Billy Miles, my old elementary school friend who a couple of years ago, I was friends with him on Facebook. Uh, his, uh, his daughter, and he and his daughter were in an accident where I think they were hit by a truck or something. But anyhow, Billy, pulled his daughter out from a, 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 a car that was engulfed in flames and he died himself while rescuing her. And uh, I, I, to me, I can't think of a more heroic than death than that to rescue your own child. And uh, so those, those people are heroes in my book. And those are people I've known. And they're, uh, you know, obviously there's lots more people that, you know, you've all known, I'm sure that uh, don't get called heroes. Instead, you call it a teacher's hero. Really? I mean, there's, I, mean I don't know. I, I think I'd probably go with cops over teachers in terms of being heroic. But uh, we, we label things the wrong way. And we twist and distort the meaning. And uh, that's why, you know, Memorial Day, it just brings it out of me. Because first of all, why, you know, when I was a little kid, uh, when I heard about Memorial Day, I knew it was a day that we we remembered the dead. You know, we remembered the people that died. And that's cool. That's That's good. It's a good thing. But I didn't understand as a little kid that we only remembered, we're supposed to only remember the war dead. And when I got older, I said, okay, so they matter more than the non-war dead? I mean, it it makes no sense to me. If you're going to have Memorial Day, and that's what I do. I've always done. I, I would go to, they maybe go to my parents' grave or something, and uh, you know, neither one of them were in the military. And I admit, I come from a long line of, <laughs> of non-military people's far back as I remember. So I have no experience with the military, I have no history with it, no understanding of it, really, and uh, even less understanding of police. But uh, so read that if you get a chance. It's on it's on Substack. But uh, and it kind of all got tied up into this this event of Aldi because it just it it just incenses me again that we we see the uh, you just look at the kind of people you have out there and you have uh just everybody, I, I, I liken it to like even, let's see, even when Nixon was president, even 70s, if you had people like that that I hated at the time, and certainly, you know, he was corrupt and ridiculous, but uh, Nixon, compared to any politician we have today, was light years ahead in class, even though he was considered not classy for the time, but compared to what we have now, and efficiency. You would uh, you would actually feel more confident in him or even LBJ, just crooked as they come. But back then, the incompetence factor hadn't come. And so you, you, you we devolve 
and have denigrated to such an extent that now you're looking at the people we have. You're looking to answers for people like Joe Biden. You don't even know where he is. Uh, it's it's shocking. So I, I don't know how anybody can have any faith in that. And uh, another story I want to touch on that uh, I've written about for the American, I write for the American Free Press too. You guys can check out. I have three stories in every issue every other week. And uh, I was writing about the Michael Sussman trial, and I knew I predicted in the in the article I wrote. I said, you know, this is it's going to be a very unlikely event for this guy uh, Durham, who the Q people have uh, have hung their hopes on for so long. And again, predictably, and uh, there's and this is why even if Trump had really been sincere about draining the swamp, which of course he wasn't, then, um, then what what. It, how are you going to convict anybody in Washington, D.C.? Washington, D.C. is over 90 percent uh, Democratic voters. So you have a Republican president that is trying to convict uh, presumably Democratic Party. This is what happened here. Sussman and, and the jury pool, uh, they had to choose from. They, had, they ended up with three people. Of course, the prosecution didn't even uh, contest that were open. Hillary Clinton supporters and anti-Trump people. There, there, there was no chance of conviction. And. Again, look at how the system works. Federal prosecutions are almost automatic. I think it's like a 95% conviction rate. Except on these rare occasions like that, when you get somebody who is uh, allied with a, uh, a swamp criminal, as this guy was with Hillary Clinton, and it's impossible to do. Um, Chuck is talking about, if they charged him without knowing what's up, the cops wind up shooting kids. Well, and, and you're, you're right that they could have been because that's something else cops are famous for, unfortunately. And again, that's why I want because they're not exactly accurate shooters. I mean, the reason they shot that guy, uh, I can't remember his name. He had a long African name many, many years ago, uh, like 100 times or something. is because they, they really can't shoot. They're, I don't know how they train them or whatever, but they're not very accurate. Uh, so you're right. That could, could that could. Uh, I don't think cops transplants. And this is what you get. Anybody got in proof the kid owned the truck? I, I don't. I don't. I, and again, they, they might drop that narrative completely. I don't know, because so much is so much. Abadou Diallo. Like, that's it. Yeah. Um, that, are you? Uh, so much has changed that I I don't know. But uh, border patrols guys went against the standing order. And went in. Can't uh, sort of grammar school like that. Yeah. And and. Uh, and it, it, so the border again, the border patrol guys. So there must be some truth to the rumor. Maybe they were shooting at him before because they seem to have been there. I don't know. But and of course, then you get in the whole thing. There, and what I write about all the time, I question all of these things because so many elements don't make any sense. And I saw one interview with parents, uh, mother and father. And again, I, I, I've made this clear every time I talk about it. I don't say anything about nobody died or I don't know anything. I'm questioning these things because uh, there's there are lots of things to question in each one of them. And one interview, I don't even like to watch many of these interviews with parents and witnesses anymore because I end up finding stuff that draws me down in that rabbit hole. I don't want to. I just, I just, you know, I've been there so much and you just get in trouble. But this somebody sent me this one uh, interview and I actually linked it in the article I wrote. It might have probably been taken down by now, but it was just an you know, innocuous interview. They're talking to these parents and uh at one point, the guy asks, uh, asked them, what grade is your daughter in? The mother says, we don't know the grade, but she's 10. Now, I'm sorry. I don't think there's a parent on the face of the earth that doesn't know what grade their child is in or, or, or <laughs> certainly should know what grade their child is. I mean, that that's almost like what what's their name? 
uh, it's so, but nobody's nobody's going to mention something like that because then, oh my God, you're crazy, and then they want to sue you. I'm not saying anything, but I will remind people: if you read my book, Bullyocracy, it is full of examples of uh, cases that go back decades. And it's one of the good things Alex Jones really brought up back when he was doing good work a long time ago. He was the first one to publicize these drills that they have. They have these live shooter drills, and they've had them for decades in schools all across the country. They're part of the curriculum, and they're scripted. They're, they're, they're scripted completely, and they admit they're scripted. So they, they have a – and they don't tell the students that. Can you think of anything more – it's more child abuse than that? Where you have, like, say, elementary school students, like kids at this school or whatever, if you if you had a, a live shooter there that was an actor, as happens all the time in these schools, our tax dollars pay that for that. And uh, usually there's a politically correct script. So the guy's a gun nut or a homeschool. He's never a climate change, deranged climate change guy. But uh, so, again, you tell who's who's writing the scripts. And they use crisis actors who do exist. They used to have a crisisactors.org. Uh, they get they scrub that from the internet because too many people know about it. Crisis actors they use for that they use fake blood. They and uh, they enlist law enforcement and EMT personnel sometimes in it to treat the fake victims, as apparently have they have nothing better to do with our tax money in that time. Apparently there's no real crime to fight, so they can participate in these these productions. These are so. These are admitted. I'll have you know when I hit history four, which I'm, I'm putting a lot of that stuff over in that after. I'm, finish with industry three and uh, I'll address all the, the, the school shootings and everything, the mass casualty events and the questions behind them. But um, there, you know, we, we need to ask these questions that, uh, and Chris says Columbine started all absolutely. And Chris is, Chris Graves is uh, schooling me on Columbine. I'm, I'm getting to, uh, oh, Chuck says, I, I live in the South. You haven't lived in the South. I've asked parents and they had to be asking their kids what great. Well, I, I, that's just, I'm, that's just mind boggling to me. I don't know. Well, yeah, his kids, 19 and 22 had constant active shooter. Yeah. And this, so this is, you know, now my kids never did. And believe me, I would have been there <laughs> raising health yeah, because it's child abuse. And what, what is it? Is it really that much of a leap? Let's say knowing that active shooter drills, fake active shooter drills scripted using crisis actors are a part of these curriculums. Knowing that, why is it such a leap to question the alleged real shootings and to think, hey, maybe these are drills too, especially when so many of them, from 9-11 even, to Sandy Hook and, and all these other ones, they almost always have a, uh, uh, a, sh- a drill that's going on um, in the same area right around the same time. They almost always do. And I don't think that, uh, Chuck says, more than we had fire drills. Yeah, we had fire drills when I was a kid, but uh, we didn't, which I, I always thought those were kind of overdone. But yeah, you know, if you, if you look through bullyocracy, you'll see I, I describe a lot of them in there, and it's, uh, it's inexcusable. It makes no sense, and uh, I, don't, I don't know uh, why parents put up with it, but I don't know why they put up with a lot of stuff. So, you know, we talk about critical race theory and all that. I mean, there's uh, nobody complains about the live shooter drills. Uh, Chris says, Virginia Tech was a drill with three shooters. The Patsy sister worked for the state. Yeah, I, I, I looked into that. And there's yeah, there's, a, there's a lot to question there. If you, really, if you, you looked at uh, – there's none of them that I've looked at 
that uh, that there's something not to question. I mean, there's the gay nightclub, the Pulse nightclub. There was a video they put out of, the, of uh, two guys carrying out a, an alleged victim. And uh, they're kind of carrying him on either side. And he's, he's, you know, up off the ground. They're carrying it, it was strangely, of course, why he wasn't on a stretcher, I don't know. But uh, they later showed the full video. And again, some people before YouTube was censored. They, they, they found these things. The full video shows them going down a ways, as the other video did, and then suddenly kind of just, you know, letting the guy down. And then they all just start dancing around together in celebration, including the victim. I, I'm sorry. I, I don't know that there's an instant explanation for anything like that. Then there's um, David Hogg. The guy became, well, you know, kind of a, a celebrity. And if, if anybody looked like a grooming, an actor being groomed to be a young actor, David Hogg did. He, you know, he, he looked the part and seemed the part. But uh, the story there is that David Hogg was uh, was in a cloak closet during the shooting. And he was conducting an interview with two other students while the shooting was going on. And, of course, what were they talking about? Guns. I mean, this... Just is that remotely believable? And then there was a, a, an interview I saw with that where there was uh, uh, a young girl who, and a lot of times you'll see one of these witnesses and they scrub them. You don't see them again. This girl was talking about how after the shooting, she's walking in the hall and she, she's walking alongside, I think it was Nicholas Cruz was his name, walking next to him. And he's still holding his weapons. She's calmly walking next to him and she's talking about joking with him. Yeah, I guess you were the shooter, huh? Uh, and again, this is now. I don't know what that means, but it sure doesn't sound normal. And they typically uh, scrub those kinds of interviews really quickly from the internet because they're uh, they're damning, and they cause lots of speculation. And apparently, they don't want any speculation. That's why I'm very careful too. I don't. I don't want to be sued, like Alex Jones and uh, Jim Fetzer and uh, Wolfgang Halbig. But again, I'm, I'm making no, I'm making no representations. I'm sure as hell I'm not going to come up with a book like Jim Fetzer did and give it the title he did. That was ridiculous. But that's Fetzer, and uh, but there, there, there's a lot to question in all these things. And you know, certainly the Dave McGowan, who I meant to bring him up with our guest the first time, I never got around to it. But see if he was familiar with his work. But uh, Dave McGowan did an incredible job on uh, the Boston bombing, and I, I think you know that. He, he he suddenly got really sick right after he did that incredible interview he did on um, Caravan to Midnight, which I, I've been on a couple times myself uh, with John B. Wells. And uh, it's a real long interview, uh, very impressive. And Dave, it's kind of haunting to watch the cigarette smoke everywhere because he's, he's obviously smoking a lot. I think he might even have been coughing a little bit. Uh, very intense, very extreme, analyzing the, the photographs and showing all the theatrical elements in them and everything. But uh, there's a lot there to question. But uh, Chris says, Pizza Get Shooter is filmed shooting the, the shit with DC cops unhandcuffed at one point. Turns out him and his family have IMDHs. <laughs> yeah, I have to. Yeah, and I have to. I have to look into that Pizza Get Shooter, too, for Hidden History 4, Chris. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, if you look. If you look into the backgrounds of these now, you know, my nephew, one of my nephews that canceled me, he canceled me on that uh, when uh, I was over with my sister and uh, she kind of you know, set me up and he was asking me what I thought of some shooting. I can't remember. And uh, I was talking about the acting grounds, the backing grounds, acting backgrounds so many of these parents have that are involved in these things and uh, and witnesses. 
And he just got all upset and just said, oh, I can't believe it. And he just walked out. I probably never talked to him again. So you have to, um, I don't know. I guess you, you, you uh, the average person probably has to be careful talking about these. I'm not because this is, this is my livelihood at this point. You know, this is uh, what I do full time. Uh, I'm not going to back down from the truth. And uh, they're, they're, these are legitimate questions. I'm not making, and I'm certainly not harassing anybody. As I have pointed out many times, that, you know, when people say whether, you know, you're harassing a parent, whether they claim Wolfgang Halbig or any of these people are harassing Sandy Hook parents, and people in the JFK assassination research community tell me that. And I've always countered by saying, you know, if you take that train of logic and it gets ingrained in people that you can't question the narrative about anything, you can't question anything, then or, or it's, it's harassment of the family. Why couldn't the Kennedy family? have uh, gone after Mark Lane and Harold Weisberg and all these people early on and say, you know what, this is harassment. You're, you're saying, you know, that, that, uh, you know, our, our loved one's death didn't happen the way, you know, you're causing us trauma. This is harassment. I mean, it's, it's, it's that exact same, you know, uh, it's, it's the exact same kind of logic, isn't it? I think it's completely the same, but uh, people in the research community think, you know, they think you're crazy talking about this kind of stuff and that somehow the JFK assassination was an anomaly. Um, Chris says the girl walking with Nicholas Cruz said that while talking to him, shooting in the distance is going on. The gunman must saw had the military gear. Same with Aurora. Yeah. And there's, um, and there's, there's so much, I mean, there's the Batman, the Aurora Batman shooting where you had the, uh, the couple and Chris sent me stuff on that too. And I, I remembered at the time watching the interviews, but they're, they weren't married, but uh, there were a couple that had a baby. And the story, first of all, they took a baby to a midnight showing <laughs> of a Batman movie. Okay, maybe they just were poor. They couldn't get a babysitter. I don't know. It just seems pretty irresponsible to take a baby to a movie where you know there's going to be Dolby sound and lots of really loud explosions. I mean, it's just you know, really irresponsible. But okay, they're young parents. They're stupid. Okay, that's fine. They all make mistakes. But uh, the story – and these, these this couple did – Tons of interviews. They couldn't stay off the air. They were—I mean, I don't know what they were proud of because the guy was about as cowardly as anything we've ever seen. During the shooting, we're told that he took the baby and put the baby on the floor behind his his chair and crawled out of the theater by himself and left his um, girlfriend, not his wife, and baby behind. Now, luckily, for the politically correct scriptwriters, who should show up on the scene but a strapping young black lad? to rescue the day and save the baby and escort the baby and the, uh, the uh, girl out of the theater. And these three were doing tons of interviews. Now, consider the guy that ran is playing the part of the coward, and he's just happy as can be to be part of I me. Mean, just to advertise the fact that he left his uh, loved one and baby behind to be killed, presumably. And then to make it completely absurd, on one of the interviews, we learned that he had just asked her to marry him and she accepted. So I guess you found out, you know, what she's really looking for in a mate was someone who would be cowardly enough to leave her and the baby behind. And once he did that, I mean, how could she say no, right? <laughs> you know, this is, uh, but, I mean, if you look at these things, if you look at the interviews, I know people are, are, are strange. People are uh, quirky, what I call, and the reason I call 
my novel, The Unreals, is because I, when I was young and anybody that knew me back then, no, I used to call everybody and everything. Oh, you're an unreal. You're acting unreal. It was my favorite word. And uh, so it's kind of natural that I would call my book The Unreals. But uh, so there, I know there are lots of unreals out there that are uh, unique, to say the least. But the, ki- the, the people associated with these events, I mean, you know, not knowing what grade their kids in, uh, calmly walking beside a shooter and joking, you, you were the shooter, huh? Uh, with apparently no fear at all that he might turn the gun on you. And, and who else was walking along? I mean, didn't, did, it weren't, I mean, why weren't people running like it was a Godzilla movie or something from this? It's, instead, they're just kind of calmly walking along. I mean, it's just none of these things. If, if you, again, if you look at them, and from what I can understand about the Evaldi incident, it shares a lot in common with Sandy Hook. Uh, this guy supposedly shot his grandmother first. Now, I think he shot her in the face or the head, but I think she's alive. I, I'm not even unsure on that because I think she called 911 or something afterwards. After it's pretty grandma taking a shot to the face, that's pretty good. Uh, with the weapon he used, I don't know how her face would have been left, but that's I think that's what we're told. But I you don't hear anything about the grandmother now. But uh, of course, uh, Adam Lanza, Sandy Hook supposedly. Uh, First, we were told, killed his father. And there were lots of news reports that talked about a a, a body being found at his father's home in New Jersey, I think. And, you know, there were cops walking in. Okay, how do you make a mistake like that? I don't know. Turned out later, no, no. He killed his mother. So same kind of thing in terms of first you kill your, you know, your maternal figure. And then you decide, well, I've, I've, I've got to go shoot up the school. And then. In this case, of course, you didn't have the police stand down at Sandy Hook like this, but it looks to me like no EMT people were allowed in the school or ever went in the school because they weren't. I, I don't know that they treated any injured victims, which is what happened at Sandy Hook. So these are these are all questions that should be asked. But just the very questioning of them is now termed harassment and it's all part of this really disturbing trend we have to to try to demonize any kind of skepticism about anything any kind of skepticism any questioning of authorities it's either hate speech or misinformation disinformation or harassment even and uh, in reality it's just people i mean maybe maybe some people are spouting off their opinions they're just at a barbecue i think this well they have the right to say that Sure, and it's one thing like because I think it's different if if it's a national story like Sandy Hook or Evaldi, um, and it, then I think that's different when it's a national story than it is with just like your neighbor or something. Uh, Chris says no. The Nicholas Cruz girl said Cruz had regular clothes and no gun. Oh, okay. She joked and they thought he'd do something like this. He gave her. Pl- oh, okay. I didn't. I thought he was going. And Chuck said he can explain the difference between asking questions about JFK and claiming it's all an act to achieve political ends. Sure, Chuck. I mean, it's fine. I, I, I'm, I'm cool with that. I mean, I, I just think that you know that's it's it's not much of a stretch to go from there because I think it's the same kind of logic is that by questioning, it's one thing like to question like if you're in a neighborhood because you know a lot of these things don't get publicity. You know, every everything that happens to a little girl doesn't turn into John Denae Ramsey. You know, lots of people have tragic things happen and nobody knows anything about it. So something like that, if there had been a story, yeah, to just go like be a neighbor and just start saying, yeah, you know, I don't I don't think your kid died or question stuff about it. You're, Yeah, that's that's different. 
that that is harassment, I think. But uh, although I don't know how you treat it, I know it's a, it's a very you know it's a slippery slope there. But I think if it's a national story and it turns into something about gun control and increased security, crackdown on celebrities, uh, civil liberties, I think you know that it's it's fair game for criticism. But uh, but I'm sure there are lots of people in the. Uh, in the JFK research committees, I've talked to them that uh, think it's, but that's, and, and of course, you know, Jacqueline Kennedy kind of set the tone, didn't she, about don't ask, don't tell, even though all this stuff was going on. And now we see where it's, uh, it's not just Sandy Hook, look at Seth Rich. Look what happened. I mean, that's, that's a murder that has not even been investigated. I mean, they literally didn't even attempt to really find out what happened there. They just said, oh, he was killed in an attempted burglary. We're not really going to try to find out who it was. Yeah, this guy had he was apparently Julian Assange leaker of the DNC emails, but yeah, it's the and one of the probably the only time in his career, Sean Hannity attempted to actually do some investigating, half ass investigating on Hannity. Uh he almost lost his job. He lost a bunch of sponsors, and um Seth Rich's family threatened to sue him. Why? I mean, it's raising questions. Wouldn't you want to know what happened? That, that's what I don't understand. Okay, you can say Sandy Hook's different because uh, there there shouldn't be any mystery about what happened. That's a little different if you're you're questioning whether it happened. But in something like Seth Rich's case, uh, they're trying to figure out who killed him, and they don't even want to do it. Same thing with Gary Webb. Gary Webb's family used to get pissed off, and they, Gary Gary Webb's family accepts the fact that he shot himself, that he shot himself twice in the head. I, I don't know what to tell you, man, but. How many families would accept that? I wouldn't. I don't, I don't, you know, I, I think that's, um, it, it's, it's taking, uh, uh, subservience to a whole new level, but this is, you know, this is, uh, America now where you, people don't, you question things and that's why identity politics is so dangerous because it's all about emotion and it's, it becomes, uh, they're so outraged, you know, about that. You know, oh, how dare you? You know, when you're when you were little, you probably might have known some oldsters that you, how dare you, that would say that. <laughs> and I think uh, uh, Bob Wilson uh, talks about uh, the only person who ever said how dare you to him in his life was Mort Saul, which is a pretty cool story, uh, which you can uh, you can kind of see because um, uh, John Barber, I think, had a kind of a nasty experience with Mort Saul, too, <laughs> we found out. But... Um, so you can kind of picture him saying how, but that, that's what we become almost like a how dare you society? How dare you say? And I, I just blanch at that, man. I don't, I don't like, I don't like people being when they used to say to be in JFK or anything like that, and say, well, that's going too far, that's too extreme. Well, who's to determine it's too far? Who's to determine because it's because once you start putting a cap on thought or skepticism, well, you can't go there. You can't go down that path. That's forbidden. Well, once you do that, then then what's the person to say, well, okay, I don't think you should go here either. You can't put restrictions on it because once you do, um, then it opens the door for all kinds of restrictions. That's why the uh, when the Supreme Court came up with that, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, uh, which was in relation, as I pointed out in my book, Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776-1963. I learned something writing that, and I don't think anybody else knows it. And I, I didn't know it. And every time I tell it, people say, oh, really? That's where that came from? Yeah, it came from Oliver Wendell Holmes, great 
liberal hero, eugenicist, uh, warmonger. So he's a liberal observer like Clarence Darrow and H.G. Wells and so many others at the time. But um, he he invented that expression to uh, to uh, uh, to excuse Woodrow Wilson and support Woodrow Wilson's throwing uh, of uh, World War One protesters like Eugene Debs in prison. And as I pointed out, however you look at it, protesting a war is not yelling cry, fire in a crowded theater. But that's what they told you. With that ruling, they basically told the American people, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. And they used as an example people protesting World War One. And again, why we're at this position we're at today, I doubt very many people protest at the time or very many people say, wait, 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 wait a minute. What do you mean? <laughs> what is what is protesting war have to do with yelling fire in a crowded theater? But People, most Americans think that's like, oh, that's incredible. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Do you know where that came from? Ask people, and they have no idea. And do you know what that was based on? Okay, so don't quote it because it's based on, you know, ridiculous, illogic. Uh, Chris says the Sandy Hook janitor got the award at the White House. Yeah. We still don't know the names of the Sandy Hook choir kids at the Super Bowl doing weird Heinz hand signs, uh, etc. That's right. There's, I mean, I don't, I don't know that much about the Super Bowl because that's when you really get in. That's kind of Jim Fetzer territory where um, I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I, I just kind of go for the big. Uh, what I think are the biggest indications of, uh, you know, things like and, and Chris found that from me, the Laughing Monsignor Robert Weiss, which is, uh, you heard that interview, folks. Uh, and it's been scrubbed, but Chris found it, so it can, you can still find it in Bit Shoot or somewhere where he found it. But uh, I remember at the time listening to it and saying, "Well, I grew up a Catholic, and this guy's a Monsignor, and they're interviewing him because he he was associated with the with the school and the community, well known figure, and uh, they're asking him about this tragedy, and he's he just he's giggling, he's literally giggling. All these kids have just been killed. He's giggling while talking about it." Uh, you know, nervous hit habit, I and mean, that's way beyond Robbie Parker. Nervous habit, uh, <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I don't, I don't know what that means, but it's, uh, it's very bizarre. And that case is full of that, as are all these other cases. Going back to Gabby Giffords, and uh, I was going to have um, Stephanie Sledge, who's done great work on all this on my show, but unfortunately, she experienced a family tragedy. I was going to have her this Friday on my show, and so. Uh, she can't make it, so. Um, but uh, I'm going to have her on a future show, either this show or that one. But uh, hey, we're almost out of time here. But uh, the hour went, the two hours went quick, didn't it? But uh, I hope you guys like this show, and uh, we'll probably, um, hopefully, we'll have a good show for you next week. I'm trying to line up guests all the time. I'm always asking the prettiest girls to dance, so uh, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I don't get the dances I want. So I try to be very picky in terms of guests to try to bring you the very best. But as always, Chris and uh, Jimmy James and all, all the people out there in the chat room, I appreciate you guys listening. And uh, Chaco Coachelli, great producing as always. So anyway, thanks so much for listening to I Protest. We'll see you next week, same time. Mm-hmm.